0: Welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris.
1: And I'm Ari Deckard.
0: And this is our podcast where I, Ari's wife, interview him about his experiences with the genetic disorder Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all the related medical things that he's been through during his life. Hi. I, I'm realizing more and more I need to find a smoother way to work in the fact that I'm your wife based on audience feedback so that people know because it feels like that awkward thing you know when someone's kind of flirting with you and you're trying to like oh hey well my husband (laughs) you're always trying to sneak it in it doesn't it's not really working
1: (laughs) all of the feedback i've received indicates that every single person would like you to sing your intro song at the beginning of every episode and possibly multiple times during the episode
0: the great thing about a podcast is you record it and then that one thing you did that people liked is there forever for them to go <laughs> for them to go find it when they want to. In our last episode, we talked about your second kidney transplant that you received mm-hmm. from your uncle Michael. Yes. And we're going to pick up the story right after your second kidney transplant. Okay. But first I have a little fact that I learned this week before recording because you know I've been trying to follow different accounts and and people within the sort of kidney transplant community as part Mm -hmm. of, you know, our social media for the podcast. And I found out there's a dialysis history museum in Seattle.
1: No kidding. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I bet this is because dialysis either started in Seattle or Seattle was one of the places where it became the biggest, earliest.
0: In the 1960s, dialysis meant a machine the size of a small refrigerator. Mm -hmm. In fact, Seattle's first machines were built by a manufacturer of ice cream machines.
1: Wow. Delicious.
0: That's a fun fact.
1: Yes, it is.
0: So to pick up your story, Mm -hmm. you and Michael have your transplant surgery. You both recover very well and go home. How was sort of the extended recovery at home from your transplant surgery?
1: (laughs) I use the word fine a lot on this podcast. It was fine. Uh, It was not like the first time in part because, you know, I certainly was on high doses of just about all the same medications or in maybe some cases like a different generation of the same medication. But I was not as like crazy manic as I had been with the first transplant. So I went home and relaxed. There was also... I felt kind of an urgency to get back to work, because as I mentioned, we had a big competition coming up with, uh, at work with, for the band, but it wasn't like you have this hard deadline when you're going to go to college in another state. I said you're, when I was about to go to college in another state. If I had needed to be out until summer, basically not gone back that year, I could have. Um, that was sort of the advantage of it not being an official paid position that, you know, I I definitely treated it like a real job, but in the end it was completely a voluntary position. And so I could just say, bye. And that was it. Obviously I didn't want to, and I didn't, but I, you know, I was at home. I kept in touch by phone, email, I think maybe even some IM stuff with various people, it was pretty low key. And then I was able to kind of ease back in. One of the first things I did to ease back in was about a month after the transplant was the big spring concert
0: for Westview band
1: for the Westview band. Yes. And I really wanted to hear how they were going to play. And at the time they would hold the big spring concert, like the week of, or basically right before the, the state competition as sort of a A dry run, if you will, of the same stuff they were going to play. And so I wanted to hear, okay, what's it going to sound like? How are we going to do? So I went and, you know, I told them beforehand, I'm going to be there. Um, and by them, I mean like the band director I had told, but my mother came with me because you're not allowed to drive initially because you have a major abdominal incision and you don't want to like slam on the brakes and hurt yourself. So, uh, she came with me and I sat there and the concert was amazing. Um, and I had been teaching in addition to like coaching the percussion section and working as you know, a member of the faculty. After school, I taught most of the percussion section um, individual private lessons, and that was actually where I made money. Uh, and so one of my students, um, one of my best students, they were all my best students pretty much, but one of my, my best students in terms of achieving results at competition. Performed a piece that we had been working on that she was going to play within the next month or so at the state solo competition. Uh, she got a silver medal that year, and um, and she dedicated it to me. It was really sweet. She said, Aww. "Yeah." She said, "Like, is Ari here in the audience?" And she asked me to stand up, and I did. And she couldn't see me because that's how stage lights work. And people gave me a round of applause, and then she played it, and it was wonderful. Um, she'd really made a lot of improvements uh, on her own pretty much once when I was gone. And then, um, uh, the band director came in and said, welcome back, Ari, we're really happy to have you doing so well. And then, you know, they played the rest of the concert. It was great. And I got to see people. And then I think I went back to work about like full time, about a month later. I think I'd checked in a few times before that, but that was a really long answer to kind of a simple question.
0: Well, one of the things I was curious about and we talked about this a little bit with your first transplant is how quickly how you feel changes. And yeah. this is I think a, a different experience than the first transplant, but you go from being a full-time end-center dialysis patient to now having a working functioning kidney. Mhm. And I think it would be good for our audience if you described what that feels like and kind of <laughs> a, and and the and the timeline for how you feel changes.
1: Okay. Well, I'm going to start with perhaps the most obvious thing to me, which is that when you're on dialysis, you do not produce urine, so you don't have to go to the bathroom as often. And if you're a teacher, that is...
0: Like a superpower.
1: It's like a superpower. Uh, It's really weird. Anybody who's ever taught or thought about how it works as a teacher will realize that passing period which is when sometimes kids go to the bathroom but usually when kids kind of wander to their locker and talk about like oh my god i couldn't believe they said that or whatever is the only time that you can get to pee and at westview we had reasonable maybe even five to seven minute passing time which is still pretty quick you gotta be like okay and remember next time we're gonna rehearse this and this and i'll see y'all later and then you're not really supposed to leave while there's still kids in the class, but you kind of have to. And so then you're like, ah, and you got to wind your way through the halls to the staff bathroom and then you kind of do that and then you run back so you can be ready for the next class. It's a very, very short window. You know, kids can go to the bathroom during class if they get permission, depending on the teacher, all that stuff. And I never had to do that. It was really easy to go through the day and just like doop to doop to doop. And all of a sudden, I had to contend with that. And especially when you first have a transplant, first of all, it's a new sensation. I had not peed in about five years, and that is really weird. Um, I'm not gonna describe it, I think, any more than that, but just imagine, like, sort of mentally, and also physically, it's weird.
0: And like a really alien sensation. It's a
1: really alien sensation. You know, we all kind of grow up going like, what is that feeling? Oh, that means I need to go to the bathroom. And then you don't feel it for five years and you kind of forget. And then all of a sudden you feel it again and you're like, what is it? Oh, my goodness. Um, and also when you have recently had a transplant, you're trying to really hydrate a lot to make sure the kidney's really working and to kind of get it working.
0: Right. That's an interesting thing. You go from dialysis where it's kind of drink as little as possible. Yes to transplant where they're all of a sudden like push fluids drink 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 because they want water flowing through that new filter you've got
1: yeah yeah and really really pushing it and really working and yeah so everything flips and so uh, relatedly then some of the other changes all the the dietary stuff then becomes much more relaxed as we've discussed which was really nice and then the mental fog cleared I was way more on top of it You know, I hadn't really talked about this before uh, for this time period, but while you're on dialysis, you're sort of permanently in a sort of state of uremia. It goes up and down because you're having dialysis and then not, day on, day off kind of thing. But my memory and cognition was wacky. Most of the time I was able to be pretty, pretty good to great, Uh, As a teacher, as a coach, as somebody who was trying to like listen deeply and respond and be um, give positive criticism and things like that. But there are definitely days where I was sort of sitting in rehearsal and I would realize, oh, they just played something. I was supposed to be listening to something there. Hmm. And I would kind of smile and nod.
0: Nice. Nice job, kids.
1: Yeah. Or a big way of covering that I am and I'm certainly not the only person guilty of this is like, why don't we do that again? I need to hear that again. And, you know, that's a standard thing, because sometimes you just need to hear it again. And sometimes, whoops, I wasn't paying attention or I couldn't pay attention, you know, because I was sick. So that cleared. And all of a sudden I was pretty sharp again, like all the time. And that was really nice. I had more energy. I had more time to myself because I didn't have to get up three times a week to go to dialysis. Uh, so, practically speaking, I was all of a sudden at my job more often because, you know, as a volunteer, like I said, I could kind of make my own schedule. But what I would do is I would get up super early, go to dialysis, and by the time I'd kind of recovered that, this took a, a year and a half or so. But then I would drive myself from there straight to work. But I would arrive at like eleven, eleven thirty. Um,
0: midway through the school day. Yeah,
1: very much midway through the school day. I think we got out at like 2.20. So I would be there for a couple of periods three days a week. And, you know, that's fine. But now all of a sudden I can be there for everything. And that was really nice. Those are the the main things that occurred to me right off the top of my head.
0: And in the last podcast, you mentioned that this transplant you got from your Uncle Michael mm-hmm. was sort of riskier because it was a positive Cross match or a previous positive cross right. match. And so I'd like you to kind of recap that for the audience and explain a bit about what that means to catch people up.
1: Okay, so cross match is a process by which you mix a little bit of the donor's blood with the recipient's blood outside of the recipient's body and make sure they kind of play nice. And if they do, then they can do. All the other tests they need to do for transplant. And one of the early cross matches they did between Michael's blood and mine was positive, which meant that my blood said, No, get out of here. I don't like you. And um, then they did it again and it was fine. And all subsequent cross matches, and they did several of them because then they were a little worried. Yeah, to make sure. Yeah, and uh, including like that morning of the transplant, they did another one, were negative. And so it was the kind of thing where they said, Okay, so this is slightly riskier because previous positive. And because of that, then they wanted to be extra cautious post-transplant and really make sure that there were no risks.
0: So what do they do to um, control for that, to make sure there are fewer risks?
1: Well, they did uh, this really special, really at the time, very new, at least to my knowledge, kind of procedure, which was called photophoresis. And... Phoresis is a thing that's been done for lots of different reasons for quite a while, and I am by far any kind of expert or even journeyman in knowledge about this, so I'm not going to try. But it's a process by which you separate out the plasma from the other parts of blood, and you can then do stuff. (laughs) And truly, that's about the extent of my knowledge. Photophoresis, then, is this process Where you do phoresis, but then they used UV light and maybe some other kinds of light on the blood and the plasma and then returned some or all of it to my body.
0: Okay, so back up because you just said returned to my body. But explain the process of photophoresis as a patient. What's going on? You go, oh, you go to the hospital and... Right,
1: I go to the hospital, and then they put two needles in your arm, which feels really, really familiar if you've been on dialysis. And they were able to use my fistula, which was nice. So this tube goes out of my arm, and my, the blood leaves, and it's very similar to dialysis. It's not going as fast, but it goes into a machine, and then all of this stuff is kind of hidden from me. But it really it looks kind of like a dialysis machine. There's a pump... There's all that stuff, without, except without the the dialyzer, the dialysis filter.
0: The fake kidney.
1: The fake kidney. And while it's in the machine, a process or two occurs. And this is, like I said, where I'm a little bit uncertain about some of the details. But they do the phoresis part, where they separate out the plasma from the red blood cells and the other parts of the blood. And then they sort of zap it with this, I believe, ultraviolet light. And... There may be other elements to this process as well, but they sort of treat the blood. And then what that is intended to do is to essentially lower my immune memory. It's intended to target the white blood cells that are you know, my body's defenders, the immune system, and kind of say, hey, chill out and maybe forget some of the things that you might be freaked out about. And then, then they return the blood to my body. And they keep doing that. And it was for a much lower time than dialysis. I was on dialysis generally for four and a half hours. This was, I think, like an hour and a half, two hours each time I did it. I did it for several weeks, once or twice a week, I think. And then I was done.
0: And to just give a little bit of an explanation, because you talk about lowering your immune memory, most people's experience with immune memory is your immune system gets an illness and it attacks it and you survive. And then it's good against that illness. The most common idea about this, I think, that most people are familiar is chicken pox. Right. If you've had chicken pox before, your immune system knows how to deal with it and you don't get it again. Exactly. Well, well most people don't. Right. Or lots of times if you have different kinds of the cold, your body learns, I know that cold, and you don't get it again. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to sort of making it so that your uncle's kidney could hack it longer in your body you're also forgetting perhaps some of the colds you fought or some of the other, right. you, you become more vulnerable to previous illnesses that your body fought off.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, and this was one of those funny times because they said that and they explained it and they were talking about how cool it was because well, it, it is
0: cool. It, it's
1: really cool. Um, it's kind of insane that they have this thing that they can do uh, and they can do all this stuff that is kind of crazy. Um, that, I think before they started thinking about doing this, no one had thought we could even do this. And there really isn't any reason outside of this kind of technology or this situation to do that. It's really great that our bodies go, that's chicken pox. We know how to deal with it. We've got it. We want our bodies to be able to do that. Uh, But in this particular kind of situation where my body had become uh, maybe highly sensitized, which is, I believe, the, the term that they use, because of having a foreign kidney already in my body and some other things like that, they didn't want it to then be just essentially so tense that anything that comes in, it would just freak out about. So they removed some of the immune memory, and I I remember asking them, okay, so does this mean I might get things again that I've had before? And they were like, long pregnant pause, Maybe, maybe. We (laughs) don't know. Um, But it'll be fine. Um, And I I don't mean to like put them down. When I say that, I think like, it's not that they hadn't thought about it, but they kind of hadn't because they were excited about this one aspect of it. And the fact is, when you're immune suppressed, you get sick again a lot. And they kind of hadn't, I I think it kind of hadn't yet occurred to them Oh, this other thing had happened. Because they hadn't had time to do some of those longitudinal studies to find
0: out. Right. This was pretty cutting-edge stuff. And I think this is, for the same reason, my favorite thing. Because <laughs> you, they took your blood, they shined UV light at it, and, you know, mutated your, your immune system. A little bit, yeah. And that is so crazy mad science to me. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. This, this response you got, it's a little bit like the movie Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. where he asks... Will this cause brain damage? And the doctor says, well, technically, this procedure is brain damage. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. The whole point is that, yes, you will forget things. Your immune system will forget things. Yeah, the, the main side effect of this, of course, was that for the rest of the day after I had photophoresis, it made me sort of sunlight sensitive, And I say sort of, it made all of me sunlight sensitive, but what they told me was, but your eyes are going to be extremely photosensitive, and you could go blind if you don't protect them. And they did not say it casually, obviously, but that's a weird kind of thing to be like, hey, you have to do this thing. You've got to do this, or you might lose the transplant. Oh, okay, I'll do it. What do I need to do? And then, well, by the way, if you just make this little slip up, you could also go blind. Well, what? Okay. And so then they gave me to wear those kind of really flimsy, like, dark glasses that you get after going to have your eyes dilated at the doctor. Those,
0: like, crazy ones?
1: Yeah, and they're, you know, they're super ugly and uncomfortable. And I, being kind of young in my 20s, said, could I just wear sunglasses? And they were like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Which is strange, you know, because... You know, they made it a big deal like this could be really serious. And it wasn't like just when you're outside. Fluorescent lighting, any kind of lighting could be a problem. And so there were multiple times where I had to go teach high school in sunglasses like a real cool dude. Um, I was really fortunate in that, like, <laughs> one thing is that teenagers, by their very nature, are kind of self-involved and don't always notice when a teacher is doing something weird like that or care um, or care enough to be like uh, what are you doing but also more importantly the kids did care and they cared a like are you okay because that's weird and i was able to say listen i'm having this thing i gotta wear sunglasses they're like all right you know, whatever you do is fine.
0: You get so many during your career, teachable moments outside the purview of music, <laughs> music education.
1: Yeah. And so I explained it to some of them. They're like, "Ooh, neat, you know, so.
0: Well, that's, you know, when I first met you, you were, I, I met you and you were a percussion instructor and I noticed you're wearing hearing aids and a, a drummer true. with hearing aids tells a certain story.
1: Yeah. And it's not the it, right one for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's the assumption lots of people make. Oh, I see. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> not at all
0: are there other things you have to do to take care of yourself post-transplant? You've had this surgery, you're doing these procedures. What other things or restrictions do you have before you bound out and enjoy regular life?
1: (laughs) Excellent question. And I think that I'm wishing in retrospect that I had remembered to mention those during the first transplant discussion that we had. So, you know, you have this organ that is um, sutured inside you. I mean, it's eventually like grows to be part of you, but there's a lot of little cautionary ideas. One thing is that, um, at least at my hospital, at OHSU, they, were, they said, so no bungee jumping. Um, I should probably shouldn't go horse riding or downhill skiing because of the fear that such a heavy like jarring or impact that's possible in those kind of things could essentially knock the organ loose, which sounds super gross and, of course, is not anything that you want. I had long since stopped downhill skiing. I had never been interested in bungee jumping. And I had been on a horse a couple of times, but it wasn't really a big deal to not do that. I also didn't play football or wrestle or any of the other kinds of like high-impact sports that they said, sorry, you can't do this anymore. I remember them telling a story about there was a guy who was a boxer who was very disappointed and like said, no, but maybe I could still do it. And they said, no, you really can't, and that makes sense. And this is, of course, because... Our natural kidneys are fairly well protected in our back behind all of that back muscle. But when they give you a transplant, because that back muscle is there, it is far easier to go in through the front, and it's in the front, which is way more vulnerable to lots and lots of things. And so I was fencing, and I said, hey, I'm fencing, and I really want to get to fence. Uh, And is there something that can be done? because we don't hit each other very hard and we wear a lot of protective gear
0: yeah you got a whole cage over your face
1: yeah uh but you know it is a pointy metal object and our protective jacket can slide to the side and things like that and they said actually we do have an interesting solution and we had done something kind of like this when i was at lawrence and started fencing but i went back and they they did it again and there's this place that OHSU sends patients who want this done, and they, they take a sort of standard medical back brace, which is a bunch of elastic with a very thick plastic insert that is supposed to go in your back to brace it, and they mold that plastic to wherever you want it to fit. So in my case, because of where my kidney was on my side, I wanted it to kind of mold around my side and cover that um, on the lower part of my abdomen. And they also then, at my request, added a groin strap uh, so that it wouldn't ride up too much. It would stay where it was supposed to be. And all fencing gear has a bunch of groin straps. So it was just one more. So they added this thing and they molded it. And I could wear it. It was very comfortable. I could do deep lunges. I could do all the deep squatting I needed to do as a fencer. And it, you know, it's about two millimeters thick plastic, which is plenty.
0: So it was your kidney shield.
1: It was my kidney shield, yes. And then on my own, I went to some sporting goods store and I bought um, a soccer shin guard. Well, I bought a pair of soccer shin guards, but I bought that so that I could wear it on my back arm. Again, plastic covering my fistula, which I really did not want to get jabbed with. Um, It's not sharp, but, you know, a metal stick. So I wore that stuff with my fencing gear. Uh, The thing is that I was very curious about, you know, how effective is it? And I obviously didn't want to just test it in the moment like, hey, guys, bring your swords, come stab me, in case it it was bad. So
0: That would be a bad time to find that out. It would be
1: a really bad time to find it out. And... You know, the shin guards weren't very expensive, so I just, like, I bought them, and I I took them home. And as a percussionist, I have a bunch of sticks and mallets that, like, could hurt but not injure. And so I put on the shin guard on my arm, and I started, like, tapping it experimentally with a mallet, and, like, I I couldn't even feel it. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It dispersed the impact and protected me perfectly. It was great. And then I had on my um, abdominal shield... And I tapped it experimentally, and again, it was fine. It was great. And I got kind of excited. I was standing there with this mallet, and I was like playing on it. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And by playing on it, I mean like whacking it with a mallet. Okay, cool. And I started just like hitting it really hard and rapidly. And then I got a little bit distracted, and my aim got off. And of course, then I hit myself directly in the groin with uh, my mallet and kind of curled up and sat on the floor in pain and just started laughing at myself because, of course, why I pr- thought to protect one thing, but I wasn't <laughs> wearing all the protective gear one usually wears when one is fencing, and I had no one to blame but myself, and that was just sort of the situation I had created. Uh, so I had that, and it was it was great. It was, like I said, very comfortable and fully protected me. The only issue with it sometimes was that Uh, There's a particular feeling that you have when sometimes you go in to get a touch in fencing and you accidentally, I mean, it doesn't matter, but you hit somebody like on a rib and you can feel yourself hitting that bone and you know that there's going to be a bruise there and you know it's going to hurt even though you probably haven't hit them very hard. And it turned out that hitting my shield felt exactly like hitting a bone, except this was a much broader target area.
0: It felt like that for your opponent.
1: For my opponent. And so there were a number of times where they would you know, hit me. And you don't hit very hard. It's 500 grams of pressure. It's not a lot. And they would hit me and be like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. And I was like, did you hit me? I didn't even feel it. You know, it was this really difference between what they thought had happened and what I knew had happened. But that was it. It was totally legal. It was great. It was a relatively easy solution to what could have been just this thing you love doing. You can't do it anymore.
0: And I think that's something that we should return to and highlight in the podcast is that your condition does lead to a lot of restrictions. Yeah. But working with professionals, with your medical advisors, mm-hmm. and just kind of by being determined, you can work out ways to keep things in your life that are important. Yeah. Or to structure your life in such a way that you can still enjoy it despite having this obstacle.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so.
0: So now that you had the transplant, mm-hmm. you had already dropped out of college once. Yes. And you were sort of working as a volunteer, but paid in some ways yeah. music teacher and doing fencing. Mm -hmm. So what were your future plans now that you had this transplant? How are you going to structure the next part of your life?
1: Well, that was obviously the subject of a lot of discussion and debate. And of course, on my part, I've been thinking about it practically since the day I came home from Lawrence. My initial thought was, I'm just going to go right back to Lawrence. And then it came pretty clear that that probably wasn't the best idea. That emotionally it would be really hard to be gone for a year or two or three i didn 't know how long, and then try to go back to the same exact place, and also it was in the midwest, and it just being that far away from my doctors and from home had not been the smartest idea, or at least felt like it hadn 't been the smartest idea at the time, and so I immediately, upon realizing that, kind of transitioned to saying, "Okay, well, then I should be on the west coast where I am a only couple hour flight home maximum and so about a year after I came home from Lawrence, I auditioned at the University of Southern California
0: and this is before you got the transplant you were on dialysis yeah this
1: is this is well before I'd gotten the transplant. Um, I'm on dialysis I think at that point I had barely started working at Westview even and I had come to the conclusion I wanted to go to USC through some process. Uh, I was used to going to a music school of a certain caliber. I had gotten in, and when I was healthy, completely able to, I felt hang at that level. And so I wanted to go to a comparable level school, but I was restricting myself geographically. And there are not that many schools of that caliber on the West Coast. In my opinion at the time... There were none in the state of Washington, and there were none in the state of Oregon. And there are plenty of people in those states who work and teach.
0: Don't email us.
1: Who would disagree. But at the time, I was convinced that was true. That then left California, and in California, there were about three schools that I felt were up to my standards. So I I, I said a, a while ago, a few episodes ago, about my arrogance in going to Portland State and things like that. That was still in play here. So I went down and auditioned at USC. It was uh, was really nice. It, it was really nice, and I felt very prepared, and it was one of those rare auditions for a college position. I was auditioning to transfer, where at the audition, the professor said, I'd love to have you come here. Yay, you! Yeah, it was uh, great. Usually, you have to wait for the packet and everything. He said, I'd love to have you come here. And the thing was, I was completely jumping the gun. I didn't know when or if I would have a transplant. It was just the sort of idea I had was that, well, by next fall, probably. And that didn't happen. And then the next fall and the next fall. And I, I emailed him or I wrote him and I said, listen, this is actually the situation that's going on. Is it possible to defer? And he said, yeah, you just call me when you're ready to come. I'd love to have you be a part of here. And that's like super generous. And, um, I feel like I'm kind of humble bragging here and I it's just that's a thing that happened I (laughs) I I almost felt like I didn't deserve it at the time and um it was like I said it was very generous of him to say but by the time this transplant had rolled around I felt like I didn't want to go to USC anymore um oh
0: you strung them along that's
1: right and I mean I hadn't been in touch with them for I don't know two or three years at that point but I had really felt like I wanted to still go someplace close to home, obviously, but also that USC is a place where there are very few so-called non-traditional students, students who go from high school to college for four years or maybe five and graduate, whereas I was definitely going to be a non-traditional student. I was in my mid to late 20s at that point, going to come back and be in in a bachelor's program with 18-year-olds, and I didn't. I just didn't feel like doing that. And
0: people who know where this story is eventually going to end up are probably laughing right now, but yes. that's fine.
1: <laughs> that's, yeah, exactly. So uh, I didn't want to go to U.S.C., I didn't really want to stay in Oregon if I didn't have to. And so I kind of fixed my sights on this school called Central Washington University, which is in, you'll be surprised to learn, Central Washington. Um, It's in Ellensburg, which is in almost the exact geographical center of Washington State. And one of the main reasons I was really interested in it is that they have always had a focus in the music department on music education. Not that they don't have good performers or anything like that, but they produce music educators. And the whole school... Is and has since its inception been kind of education focused in terms of producing teachers. It started out as what was called a normal school, a school established to train teachers. So I got excited about Central Washington because it was it was far
0: it hit all the centers of your Venn diagram. It hit
1: all the centers. It was you know it was just far enough from home while still being accessible. All those things. So as it happened, this was another plus in its favor. One of my teachers from when I was in high school, my private lesson teachers, uh, who I'd really enjoyed studying with, was now the professor there. So I called him up and said, hey, I want to come be your student again. And he said, cool, (laughs) come play for me. So I came and I played for him. Then, having had the transplant, to bring it back to your original question, I had that transplant on April 1st, 2003. And that was like five months from when school started in the fall. And that's well more than the two months that I had lead time from Lawrence. But I really wanted to give myself some real time to really prepare and make sure everything was okay. And I said this is subject to some debate. And I agree with that statement. I agree with myself because... You know, it was my choice, but there was pressure from some people to like, no, just get on with it, go back to school, finish your degree. Uh, You've got five months, and some people felt, and they were, I think, at least partially right, that I really was enjoying what I was doing at Westview, and it was true that I had entered with this class of freshmen, which was pretty large, and I wanted, at least, part of me wanted to stay for their last year, for their senior year, but. Really, a lot of my feeling was I was nervous about going back to school, and I wanted to give myself time to really make sure, you know, last time I felt like I messed it up. It was really fast. I wasn't ready. Let's make sure I'm really ready. Let's practice all the stuff I need to do. Let's practice making sure I take the meds at exactly 12 hours apart. Let's practice making sure I do all the other stuff, taking my temperature, my blood pressure, and keeping track of it in my notebook regularly. Let me practice all of those things really, really well for like a year and a half, and then I'm going to go back to school. And so that's what I did. And that was kind of what I was looking to do for the future.
0: Okay, and so during this time period, while you're teaching, you're preparing to go to school, after this time period, Mm -hmm. you've got the kidney, are there any other complications that occur?
1: Yeah, there was one big one, (laughs) so to speak. Over the summer... Leading into the fall of my last year teaching at Westview, I started seeing some weird swelling. Um, there was a little bit of swelling in my ankles. I felt a little puffier.
0: And fluid is a bad sign with this, all this kidney stuff, and we've talked about it before. It can affect your heart. It, it can do all kinds of bad things.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's usually an indication that your kidneys are not working well, and it was really frightening. The other thing that was swelling, uh, without trying to get too graphic was that my scrotum was swelling um, a lot. And at first, it was just a little bit, and I wasn't sure if it was actually swollen or not, you know. And then over the course of several weeks, I think it was like three to four weeks, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is at the very end of the summer.
0: So give an idea. When you say bigger and bigger and bigger, what are the stages here?
1: At first normal-for-me size, Uh, and then after a week or two, it's probably, I don't know, smaller than my fist, and then by the time I get to this doctor's appointment that I had already scheduled, so this is sort of the end point of these four weeks, uh, it was bigger than a grapefruit, like a large grapefruit. It was really, really big. Um, it was uncomfortable to walk, as you can imagine. I couldn't wear pants anymore; they just wouldn't fit. I was in sweatpants because that's all that I could do. It was it was really awkward, you know. I, I was. I bet. Yeah, I mean, it was physically awkward, but I was embarrassed about it because you don't want to be like, "Hey, Dad, come take a look at this. Is this normal to you?" Because it obviously wasn't. And I had this doctor's appointment scheduled, so. Um, <laughs> So I went to see this doctor who I had known for years at that point, uh, and we, we did all the transplant stuff. You know, what's your weight? How's your blood pressure? Which meds are you on? Which they know what you're supposed to be taking, but it's sort of a check to make sure you know. What are your dosages? All that stuff. Are your ankles swelling? Oh, maybe there's a little bit. They do all that test. They did the physical and stuff, and they said, okay, is there anything else going on? <laughs> Which is... You know, usually when they're like, great, I, I'm done with this regular checkup. There's nothing of of any significance. Now you know, mentally,
0: goes, they're already thinking about the next patient. Right,
1: exactly. They're getting ready for that. And I said, well, there is one thing. And he said, what? And I think I said, I have some swelling or my scrotum is swollen or something. But I was I was mortified. And, and you know, at, at this point, I should also say, by the time this occurs, because nephrology, kidney medicine is so closely related to urology, which is like bladder and ureter medicine. So, so, so many medical professionals, and I would even say like semi-professionals, have seen my genitals in my life. So, so, so many. I am relatively comfortable in the right setting with Lots and lots of people just like, okay, I dropped my pants and now everybody's looking at it. Sometimes they're feeling my stuff. Cause a room
0: full of med students will come and poke you. It
1: has happened on many occasions. And so it's weird that I was mortified about this, of all things, but I was. And sort of my worst fears came true in a way because I pulled down my pants. His eyes looked like I was seeing a cartoon cat or something. Just like, what? What? Um, they were as big as, so- as saucers, and he actually—this like, was a very cool customer, doctor—and he actually said, "Oh my goodness," uh, <laughs> or, or something similar.
0: You broke his poker face
1: by a lot. Um, so, so he kind of he looked at that, and then he did a physical exam briefly, and he said, uh, "I think we need to check you into the hospital." And man, that is just. None of that is what you want when someone is looking at your private parts. You know, you don't want to be like,
0: well, that's a serious problem. Yeah,
1: I've never seen that before. We need to investigate right away. Like, oh, oh goodness. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was really not great. So so they, they put me in the hospital and they did a bunch of tests. And this was the first of a lot of different tests. So they, they left let me out of the hospital after a few days not quite sure what was going on they recommended i think that i restrict my salt intake a little bit but then i started having lots of tests and meeting with another series of doctors and this was strange because you know my kidney was fine i was doing great on the transplant front you know all my meds were great they had had them calibrated i didn't have that many side effects everything was good I was just swollen, and eventually that was going down, but then they were still like, we need to investigate this. And what it came down to was then they kind of figured, okay, it can't be anything kidney-related. We think it's probably liver, so I went to see this uh, liver doctor, and um, I don't remember his name, which is fine, but I do specifically remember thinking when I met him That this guy had got to be, like, on the cover of some, like, Doctor's Today magazine or something.
0: Was that? He
1: was so movie star good-looking and, like, dressed like he knew it. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know designers very well, but I could tell that he did. Mm -hmm. He had really hip shoes for the time. He had, you know, this... He had a whole look every time I saw him. This is
0: exactly the kind of condition you want when you meet your most handsome doctor ever.
1: Right, right. Uh, He was extremely cool and very friendly. And one of the things that was really nice about him was that he was on the professor track, I think, at OHSU, and seemed very into teaching. You know, lots of doctors are professors, but they're being doctors. And he was also into, like, really explaining stuff. And so almost every time I went in to see him, he would rip paper off of the exam... Table and get out a pen and like start drawing diagrams for me, sometimes just with little cartoons and stuff. It was always like this fun thing like, okay, here's this doctor who, like, there's a little glint off his shiny white teeth and has this amazing tie that time. And also, I'm going to come home with a little pamphlet he made just for me that explains what's going on or what he thinks might be going on. Anyway, for months, I was having little tests and I just had this weird thing going on with my liver, apparently, while everything else was fine. And then in I think early November, it would have been shortly after the end of marching band season, I was put in the hospital for a weekend because they wanted to do, or maybe even a week, but a few days anyway. They wanted to do some liver tests specifically to find out what was going on. And I remember this because I had to miss the very first weekend-long Oregon Crusaders camp.
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah, it was an audition camp. It was an important thing, and it was when they could do this test, and I had to say, sorry, I can't come. And so that also meant that several times I got like phone calls from instructors who were kind of covering for me at the camp, and they said, here, listen to this through an early cell phone (laughs) and try to evaluate what you're hearing. And I said, it sounds like somebody's hitting an instrument, and that's about as much as I can tell you. But this test that they gave me was a liver biopsy, but because of what they wanted to do or how they wanted to do it, They decided to send the probe through a blood vessel in my neck down to the liver. Freaky. It was freaky. And so they gave me a a different kind of medication than I'd had before. I think it was intended to um, sort of knock me out. They were going to do this thing that sometimes, if you've had experience with anesthesia, they might refer to it sort of as a twilight thing where... You're not completely knocked out, but you don't really feel or notice what's going on as much. Uh, And that was important because they needed me to be awake. So they gave me this medication, and they went in through my neck, and I remember it being kind of long. And I could see on the monitor, or a monitor that was specially for me this probe traveling down, 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 down until it reached the liver.
0: When they're feeding the probe through, what, is the, what are they putting in your neck? Oh, a wire.
1: There has to have been more to it than just a wire because they were going to use a tool that would have been at the end of the wire to actually remove a sample, do the biopsy from my liver, but it was like a very small scope Because I think there's probably a camera in there as well. It's this very, very thin fiber optic kind of thing.
0: So there's somebody up by your neck feeding this wire into it.
1: Yeah, you know, there must have been. I don't remember somebody standing there. But as I may have mentioned, they had given me this anesthetic that made me extremely out of it. And then there's also the person actually doing the procedure is manipulating a device that controls... The little tools that are on the end of Mm -hmm. this thing. So they did that. It took a long time. And then I was recovering. And the thing is that that medication they had not mentioned can come with a hangover. Uh, But this was by far the worst kind of reaction I'd ever had to some kind of medication up until that point. I had a massive headache. I was incredibly nauseous. I felt terrible. And there was nothing they could do. It wasn't like. You know, if you have an alcohol hangover where you could just drink a lot of fluid or something and it might get better, it was just, oh, yeah, you have to just deal with this. And it lasted about six hours. And they said, yeah, they said, oh, you know, that's normal. And I was like, well, really? (laughs) That's not great. So I was utterly miserable. But... It was fine because that was going to be it. And then I was going to get out of the hospital and they were going to get good results and be able to tell me what was going on. And then they came back to me the next day, or maybe even while I was still having this hangover. (laughs) Anyway, they came to me and they said, so uh, kind of bad news. We didn't get a good enough sample. We need to do it again. And I stared at them like they were crazy. Like, obviously, if you need to do this test, I need those results. I do. Because who knows what's going There's on. There's no other
0: way to solve this problem. Right.
1: And I, my, my life or other things could be in danger. I have to have this, of course. But uh, do you know that I had a six-hour hangover? And it was terrible. And so I said that. I said, okay, I had this reaction, and it was really, really awful. And they were like, oh, yeah, I guess that can happen sometimes. <laughs> and then one of the doctors said, well, you could do it without that. You could We could do this procedure, and you wouldn't have any anesthetic. They said it might hurt a little bit here and there, but and i was like is it possible that it would hurt worse than this and they like they didn't know but he said with some confidence based on his knowledge of anatomy it really shouldn't hurt that much we just need you to be awake cuz what I, I think one of the things i asked is like could you just knock me out cuz i don't care if i see i've seen it you know i don't need to we already see, did this once <laughs> i don't need to see this film again and they were like, no, we really can't. You have to be awake. And then he said, well, we don't have to do it with the anesthetic. And I said, all right, you know what? I I can white knuckle it. Sure. And <laughs> I'm not a huge risk taker, but I was, I think that's a good indication of how incredibly miserable I had been. So they went in they did this procedure again. Now, my memory, I think I mentioned, you know, memory is emotional. My memory is that this took about a week to do the procedure. It was very long. Thing is, It wasn't that painful most of the time. It was uncomfortable and sometimes very uncomfortable, but they did the thing and they were, I think they actually took like four samples. Like they took extra ones so they didn't have to do it again, which I appreciated. And I think I even said at the time, yeah, do whatever you need to do. We should not have to do this a third time. So they did this procedure through my neck. And one of the things that kind of kept me going through this whole thing is I was sitting there going. I am such a badass. <laughs> Who else is going to say, They went in through my neck, no anesthesia. And that's silly, <laughs> you know, but but it got me through it. And it really was so much easier than having the six-hour hangover. Because then they were done, and they patched me up, and I was done. Like, I didn't hurt. I wasn't really that tired even. It was great.
0: So I have sort of a B-side version of this story. Because I showed up at that Oregon Crusaders audition camp right. expecting to see you. Um, I'd known you for a year. Yeah. And I think we'd even talk like, yeah, see you. See you next week. You know, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. And then I showed up and there was this other guy running things. <laughs> yeah. And he did that thing. I said, oh, where's Ari? And he's like, oh, I think there was some kind of problem with his <laughs> liver with his liver transplant or whatever.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And so you know, I went through the whole thing. You know, did the audition that I had to do, mm. and then I think probably called you to catch up later. Is everything okay? And you explained what had happened with this biopsy, and I remember you saying, "I am a Jedi."
1: <laughs> well, that's embarrassing, as is you know calling myself a badass in my semi Batman voice. So, uh,
0: but the thing is, this is about strength, and mm. you you are a really strong person, and I think that people might look at you and see somebody who's sick all the time, who has a lot of health problems and a lot of restrictions on what you can do physically, sure. but I think that to not, to not see the ways in which you are strong would be a really narrow definition of strength, hmm. that you can get through so much. And I've, I've seen you do that where, okay, the only way to get to where I need to be or the only way to get these test results is I've got to do this thing that's unpleasant and you just sort of set yourself to it and you do it. You know, I've watched people take biopsies from you and I know how painful that is. And you just sort of, like you said, white knuckle it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. When you, this is just a funny thing about you is that (laughs) you've been to the hospital a lot. Yeah. And at the hospital, if you're there for any length of time, they have those pain charts, right? Zero is no pain. One is a little bit. And 10 is, you know, the worst pain possible. You're supposed to tell your, your doctors and nurses and caretakers where you are on that scale. Yeah. And I have known you and been to hospitals with you for over a decade. Yeah. And I've never seen you go above a 7. Mm-hmm. I've never, and I think actually, I might not have ever heard 7, but to be safe, I know that I've never heard you say 8, 9, or 10. Yeah, that's And true. But I have seen you pass out from pain. <laughs> <laughs> so I always thought, you know, I wonder, I wonder what he's saving those for. Well,
1: yeah, I don't know either. I'm pretty sure that, prior to us meeting there was a time when i said eight or even nine
0: what was it
1: i that's that's a terrible thing you would think it would be memorable but i don't i don't even know um but i i think you're right that the highest you've ever heard me say is six and probably seven like once that I, it's much more likely for me to be saying something is severe by saying it's a four <laughs> i'm like ooh, a four is so bad but it it's pretty bad the other thing that what you said points out something else that I think I at least wanted to mention is that there's there's this thing when you have chronic illness where it, because it's so present in your life, like you can't ever not know about it. That sounds obvious, but what I mean is like, this is pointed out to me when somebody says like, oh yeah, your liver thing or whatever. And I'm saying into this really sort of derogatory condescending, but... There's this thing where, like, people know you're sick, and it's not necessarily that they don't care about you, but because it's not an every day, every minute, every hour, every second presence for them, they can kind of forget or avoid, and it's fine for them to, of course. It's not their deal what exactly it is. But because I know always that I am a kidney patient, that, like, all I have to do is reach down right here on my abdomen. I know exactly where my kidney is. Anytime I take off my shirt, I see all the scars from all the surgeries. I have a fistula on my arm, on my arm, that if I wear a short sleeve shirt is completely visible to everybody, including me. If I just sort of feel my hands, it's there. You know, sometimes without actually having to do anything, I can feel these things. It's really, really present. I know exactly what it is. It's like knowing your own name and somebody messes it up and you're like, what? How'd you mess up my name? And, you know, and I've had this disease as long as I've had a name, even if I didn't know it. And so sometimes people kind of without realizing it sort of demonstrate that, well, they don't, they don't have to deal with what you have to deal with. Um I mean, it's also sometimes a way that indicates that, oh, maybe this person isn't as like, cool or caring as I thought they were because they're kind of dismissive. Oh, yeah, you're one of your thing, especially when they get the organ wrong and they just seem like, oh, it's not a big deal. Then it's like, not that I need you to treat me with kid gloves, but you kind of need to realize that at some point this is a huge deal, not all the time and I don't need to be super special, but every once in a while, this is really, really life-threateningly serious. And. I'm going to need you to know that. And if you don't know that right now, then it, it it's a cause for concern sometimes.
0: So I think we're going to end it there. But I think in the next segment, we're going to go back to school. We'll follow you yeah. to central Washington with your transplant and talk about some of the other stuff that happened with the transplant mm-hmm. in that time period. But now we're going to move ahead to listener mail. The first email we got was from your mother. Yay. Martha's become the official fact checker of the kidney cast. (laughs) A couple of podcasts ago, you talked about your nephrectomy, taking out the transplant, your first transplanted kidney. Yes. And we had talked about how your native kidneys had been left in and how that was typical. Yes. Uh, Martha says, uh, native kidneys are not removed when one has Alport syndrome, but they are in cases of cancer or polycystic kidney disease.
1: Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So some people do have their native kidney removed. Hmm, Okay. We got a few other... Emails this week And I'm actually not going to read Anything in its completion Yeah, Because the emails we got Were from people we know Or people who used to be in your life Who've been listening to the podcast And they were incredibly sweet And I don't want to intrude on anybody's privacy But it was really wonderful To get some of these emails Yeah, I'm going to read some portions Of an email that we got From your dad That was really sweet And again I'm not going to Read some of the more personal things. Mm-hmm. But he has some descriptions of you when you were sick as a, as a young person okay. that I think are really descriptive because he said it was, it was difficult listening to the podcast sometimes because it was such a powerfully awful time in <laughs> our life together. It went on and on with no end in sight, no remedy, and little expertise or explanation. It became a constant in our lives despite everything we did to try to get you help. We saw so many doctors none of whom could ever tell us more than what their exact specialty concerned. No one sat us down and explained about Alport syndrome. We were made to feel either like crappy parents who couldn't even send our faking kid to school, or they out and out blamed you for having something they couldn't explain away, medicate, or cut out of you. Mm -hmm. At home, I didn't understand or maybe didn't know how sick you were. I knew about headaches and I knew about your sleeping, but I didn't know what that meant. The first time I heard the word transplant was January of that year. Yeah. They put the festula in in May just in case, but we were led to believe (laughs) dialysis, if ever, would be a year or so off. And maybe a transplant became, you need a transplant now. Mm -hmm. In the months before your transplant, you came to look like a zombie. You were thin and very pale. Your hair looked dull and brittle. You were bloated, especially your belly. And you had huge dark circles around your eyes. He talks about how um, we were all lost in the tall grass, wrapped in our own private cocoons of pain and ignorance. Yeah. And it's a really emotional letter. And mm-hmm. again, we keep talking about how we're telling your story yeah. and receiving emails from other people, from people who knew you at Lawrence, yeah. who really cared about you and loved you, mm-hmm. that sometimes I feel that weight of responsibility. <laughs> you know, You want to tell every piece of it and acknowledge all these other people who are touched by this and who experience a great... Gravity in their life because of this disease, even though you're the one who has it
1: right, right, yeah, in fact, i mean i I've been really touched by the letters we've been getting this week. seems to have been busier in that way than it has recently, which is um I, I was going to say weirdly gratifying it's nice that the people think we're telling this story well, I guess, and and like you said this this letter from my dad was really personal and sweet, and i just before we started recording, I got off the phone with him. We had a, a really long conversation, kind of going over some of the same stuff. But, um, yeah, it's been nice. And I think that his description there of us all trying to deal with things at the same time by while all feeling alone in it is a really accurate, and, I mean, the way he put it, also very poetic way of of describing the, the real difficulty of that situation.
0: Well, when I think about the feeling of isolation, yeah, which is a thing that I certainly feel, and mm-hmm. that we feel together. <laughs> right. We feel isolated together when you get sick. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that. And one of the things we talked about in making this podcast is there's sort of, I guess, a support group function. If there are other people listening, mm-hmm. you're not alone. But I think getting this response is sort of, it reflects back to you. You know, <laughs> you, you are not alone and you weren't alone. Yeah. And there were these people who cared about you, who have specific memories, and who, if they knew you at a certain point in your life, are glad to hear that you're better now. And <laughs> right, yeah. That, that feeling of loneliness, it's very potent and mm-hmm. very sharp sometimes, but it's also not true. That Sometimes because you're in a cocoon, like your dad describes it, Yeah. there are a lot of people outside that feeling for you and caring about you.
1: Yeah. 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 Whether you know it or not, you're kind of all in this together. Everybody wants it to be better, even if we don't, as the patient or the person trying to help the patient, even if we don't know what to do, you know, because this is a thing that is not just my disease, but I think in general, chronic illness is not something that the average person or even an extraordinary person is is prepared to deal with. It's uncommon. And, you know, we have all kinds of medical professionals who are Great at their jobs, but they've not ever been chronically ill for the most part. So they can't, they can tell you about the medical part, but they can't like help you navigate the emotional part because it's different for everybody. It in- intersects with so many different things and aspects of our lives and people in our lives in so many different ways. It's really, really difficult and challenging to know the so called right thing to do. And really, I just think that. If there is a right thing, it's to let everybody know, hey, we're all trying. You know, we're all here. We're all struggling together.
0: Well, one of the things that it's present in when both your parents talk about this mm-hmm. and when you talk about it in your growing up experience with chronic illness, nobody gets the chance to prepare ahead of time. Yeah. Right. Like it's not like, OK, I'm cramming for the test. The time when you need to be equipped and you need to start learning about it and knowing how to handle it, <laughs> you're in the middle of it.
1: Right. Right. The time for preparation is gone. You have no idea.
0: You're always playing catch-up.
1: Always, yeah. Yeah, and this is also a thing, I mean, with Alport syndrome especially, because it's rare enough that there, in recent years, there's now, I think, some kind of genetic test they can do, possibly even in vitro. But even if you knew, okay, I'm going to have a a child with Alport syndrome, it, you know, it, it happens in slightly different ways at different times, and there's knowing and then there's knowing even with time ahead, even if you have that. I, and I hope in some small way that for some people, maybe this podcast can maybe help a little bit with that.
0: And I think we'll leave it there and okay. pick up next week. And we'll finish up with my final question, <laughs> which is Ari, how are you feeling today?
1: I'm doing all right. I'm 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 tired because I got my sleep schedule really messed up because I've been sick ish for a little while, and um, I had to kind of try to reset it, and so that's always a pain, but um, I'm getting over being sick, and I think I've got my sleep schedule reset, so I'm looking forward to being better.
0: And just because I'm starting to feel like this segment of the podcast has become... (laughs) <laughs> another another friend that you put on the happy face for. Right. Can you explain what you mean when you say that your sleep schedule got screwed up?
1: Uh, yeah. Often during summers, I kind of um, grow more and more nocturnal. And a couple of days ago, I couldn't sleep. And um, kept. S- I've been staying up later and later until finally I was up until, I don't know, 6 or 7 a.m., until I could finally get to sleep, so I did, and then I slept until 3 or 4 in the afternoon, which is, you know, not good. To fix it, I kind of had to pull an all-nighter and just, like, stay up all night so that I could then go to bed a little bit early and then try to catch up on the sleep and get up at a reasonable time this morning. So I did that, and that's a little hard, but um, I'm pretty sure that, it's, that that does the trick. It has done so in the past.
0: Okay, great. If you want to send us an email, we really do appreciate it. <laughs> a lot. A lot. Uh, it's, it's really anything you want to talk to us about. I, I made a joke about don't send us emails about colleges.
1: <laughs> Feel <laughs> but, free. But
0: really, go ahead. If you want to tell us about the U of O music program, we're all ears. Go Ducks. KidneyCast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at KidneyCast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash KidneyCast. All the episodes and show notes are available on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you, Ari, for talking to me today. You're welcome. And we'll talk to you guys next time on The Kidney Cast.